you would uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we are continuing through our series. And um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, the, the parts of Romans that we've gone through so far have not always been encouraging. They are uh, revealing pretty clearly to us our, our fallen condition and the results of that in our lives and in our minds and in our choices and in relationships and in our society and on and on. And today we come to a passage that um, Luther referred to as the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. This passage today is glorious. It is glorious. And so I want to read it for us. We're, we're in chapter 3. We're looking at verses 21 through 26. And we're going to focus just on the first few verses, but I want to read them all together so that we get kind of the, the context and the feel for the whole paragraph. So chapter 3, starting verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice at these words. We rejoice to read about your grace. We rejoice to read about this redemption in Christ. We rejoice to read that the bad news that we've read so much of in the preceding paragraphs and chapters is not the end of the story. That bad news is true. It's a true story, but it's not the end. And so we, we rejoice that we can come to these words today. And Father, we, we pray that you would help us even this morning to focus on what you have here in your word. I pray that you would work in us even supernaturally, that we would be able to set aside stresses and distractions from this past week or that are going on in our lives right now or things that, that are ahead, whether they're we expect them to be rough or wonderful. There can be nothing better to talk about than what we are talking about this morning. And so I pray that you would help us to focus on your word here. I pray that you would help us to be engaged in our minds. And I pray that you would work in us by your spirit as your word is proclaimed. Father, we lift you up. And we praise your name this morning. And we praise you and thank you for this redemption, this salvation 
that is ours in Christ. Help us to revel in it this morning. Bless us as we do so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be spending at least two weeks, Lord willing, on these two, uh, on these, this one paragraph, 21 through 26, and I've, I've broken it up uh, into two different concepts, different ways I want to deal with it. The first, today I want to talk about the heart of the gospel, and the next week I want to deal a little bit more in depth with the anatomy of the gospel, how it works. And, uh, and so, of course, I'm going to get into that a little bit today. You can't talk about the gospel without talking about how it works and why it works, etc., but... The goal today is for us to make sense out of the, the preceding chapters and to really feel the, the, the brunt of God's grace in these verses. And so we're going to deal with just the first couple of verses in this paragraph, but that's, that's kind of the idea. We, we as a family, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, were uh, traveling in Arizona and we, uh, all, we went to the Grand Canyon. We thought that would be a great idea, and I may have talked about that before, and I had seen the Grand Canyon when I was a little kid, and then a, again as a teenager, and uh, had not been back since then. And so we expected to see glorious things and beauty and, and God's creation and all kinds of stuff. What, what I didn't expect and what we didn't really plan on is the fact that we had our kids with us so close to an edge, and it's a long way down there. I don't know if you've seen it. I know you've seen pictures, but the bottom is deep. And, you know, they always tell you when you're on a high place, if you're afraid of heights or if you've got a, you know, you're working on a roof somewhere or in movies, some guys hanging off a wall, they always tell you, don't look down, right? And I I think the reason is, I don't know why, but I think the reason is because if you're looking out, you just see what's out here and you can sort of ignore how deep the depths are. Right, you can sort of ignore how long you will fly before you hit the ground, or or what it's probably going to feel like, or whatever. You can ignore that when you look out here, but as soon as you look down, you see revealed that uh, that that little boat is about that big. It's a mile down there. the The bottom is deep. It is low. And so, what we're doing, what we have done in this past. A uh, few weeks as we've been going through has really been talking about the depths, talking about just how low the bottom really is. And as we do so, now here we are as believers, we're on the heights. We're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and we peek over and it makes us a little bit dizzy perhaps to think about how low that bottom is. But that's kind of what this passage is. It's a little bit dizzying because it's so glorious, because we are so gloriously high. The passages we've just walked through make it very clear to us that there is no way we could scale the heights. That that actually we, we wouldn't even want to. Because of our own fallenness, we would rather deny God. We would rather reject Him. We would rather pursue our own pursuits, our own desires, rather than even try to scale those heights. And it would be impossible even if we were to try. And here we are, peeking over the edge. 
I'm happy to tell you that, of course, we still have the same number of children that we left with. And, uh, and so we, we, we didn't really allow them to peek over the edge all that much. Some of them are older, and they thought that was, you know, we were mistreating them, because, but we didn't care. Just stay away from the edge. <laughs> Just stay away from the edge. In fact, I wanted to go to the edge and look over it, and so the deal was we locked the other seven all in the vehicle, and I by myself went out there to peek over the edge. And, uh, and that was just fine. That's really all I needed. But those, those heights that have been scaled, uh, the dizzying heights that we look over, those can only be scaled by Christ. We only have this view. We only get to see how low the bottom is from the height that we are at because of what Christ has done. Man can only be declared righteous before God by his faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That, that it requires Him to scale those heights and, and then Him to bring us to them. In other words, the righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that He gives in Christ. That is the only way we have access to the heights. And so, we look back at our passage and we look at verse 21. And you remember those first few words there, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Keep your finger there and flip back to just one eighteen, chapter 1 and verse 18. It's a very similar construction. He, he means to call it back to mind when he says in one eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's calling that to mind, you see. He's, he's like, it's like a point in an outline. Sometimes when I want to make sure that you know this is the word you should fill in, I say it a little bit differently, right? He does the same thing. He's saying back in 118, I started telling you about the wrath of God poured out and why and how it's poured out. Not always in the way we expected, but it leads to what we read in 118 through 320, all that bad news about mankind. And then he comes to 321 and he says, but now... Transition, something new, something exciting, a new direction that he's going in his conversation. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The wrath was revealed in those, those chapters and those paragraphs. And now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so the, the question is asked, what is this righteousness doing and the answer to that is that it is bringing salvation. You see, we, we may normally think of the righteousness of God as like a part of His character, like His justice. For example, we read in Daniel chapter 9, The Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done. Makes sense. That's a part of His character. He is righteous. We read in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge. It talks about his character. It talks about what he stands for. When we read about the righteousness of God in these couple of verses, though, he's talking about something that's a little bit more specific than that. This is the righteousness of God in action, bringing salvation to sinners. This is the active righteousness of God that we're going to learn so much more about. You flipped back to 118. Now flip back to one. 16 and 17, where we're going to read some more similar language. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So even that theme of the righteousness of God is coming back into play. And we can see that the righteousness of God is tied up in, it's, it's included in the gospel. It's a key part of what is going on in the gospel. God's righteousness is not merely a passive thing that's true about him, as in the sky is blue. God is righteous. It's also active. His righteousness is active, particularly in this passage in bringing salvation to sinners. So how can this salvation be ours? How can we have the righteousness that God requires? Is it 